Hello and welcome back to California Dreaming. This is the second part of our series on Sherry Papini. We are going to discuss some of the audio that we listened to in part one. And after this, I will upload the second half of that interview. And that will be followed up with another discussion and reaction episode. I want to thank you all for the interest and the feedback on part one. It sounded like there were a lot of you who had not yet listened to these tapes. I mean, they're not tapes. They're digital recordings. Is that how they do it these days? Which I'm glad because I don't want things to be too repetitive or redundant for you. So let's talk about this clusterfuck of an interview that Sherry gave four days after she came back home. There were so many cringy things about this interview, it's really difficult to figure out which is the worst. So we're just going to go start to finish. And it's not going to be that long, so don't worry. I'm not going to bore you to death, hopefully. The top cringe moments of this interview. One of the things right off the bat was when the officers told Sherry that they brought things that she could use to draw with if she wanted to try and illustrate anything, and she giggled and joked about how terrible her drawing is. She jokingly said that she was feeling very distracted because now she could actually see outside in this very childish and pitchy and sing-songy voice that just makes your ears bleed. And then she talked about wanting her husband nearby because she's put all of her faith in him. The same guy that she walked all over, screamed and yelled at, cheated on, and disappeared on for 22 days voluntarily. She has faith in him. Ugh, whatever, bitch. And then she followed that up with her pitchiness and said that she needed Keith in the room with her because she's very nervous because I don't know you guys. And then she says, I mean, I kind of do. And then when they asked if there was anything that they could do to make this easier for her, Sherry giggled again. And then about 19 minutes into this interview, she asked about talking about her feelings that she had during this 22-day kidnapping that might not necessarily be facts, but is it okay if she brings up her feelings? I mean, to me, it kind of sounds like she's setting herself up for being very vague with the details because this whole story is made up. She doesn't want to come up with facts because the fact is everything she's saying is a bald-faced lie. Sherry claimed that the two women who kidnapped her only spoke Spanish, but she was able to interpret some of what was going on based on their body language and hand gestures. How convenient, right? They only ever spoke Spanish. And she'll go on to say that every time she made a noise with the chain that she was chained up with, the bigger woman would come in and beat her, and then they played mariachi music all the time. But she couldn't tell if it was a radio station or if she ever heard any commercials. So these ladies are human trafficking mariachi fans that blast the music on the radio all day long. Now, the reason why Sherry can't recall any commercials is because if she did, there would definitely be some local advertisements in there and they would expect her to be able to tell them what area they're in because FM radio stations and AM radio stations call out your city. And it's very easy to pinpoint if she could ever come up with the radio station and what commercials she may have heard. But, you know, it didn't happen, so... 
She didn't want to have to come up with that fact. Human trafficking mariachi fans, my ass. So anyway, when they finally get ready to have Sherry start telling her story, she says that she has no idea what to say. Most people would start with, I was jogging near the mailboxes when this vehicle approached, but no, she didn't even start there. She went even further back in time to that particular morning. And the very first thing that she wanted to talk about was wrapping a Christmas present for poor little old Keith. This bothered me so much when I heard it. Why in the world would Sherry start talking about that stupid Christmas present for Keith and she starts giggling about it? And that's what she actually says in the interview. Let's talk about the Christmas present for Keith. She said that she started wrapping this little American flag pillow that she and her son picked out for him at Cole's the night before. Way too much detail, okay? Way too much. Too much information that's irrelevant. For this to be the very first thing that Sherry brings up is so flipping bizarre. But there's a reason why I think she did this. And it's because Sherry needed to paint a portrait of herself as like girl interrupted. She was busy doing busy mom things at home, being this perfect little housewife and perfect little mommy like she had everyone fooled. And then suddenly her gift wrapping was left unfinished. Just like her jog, just like getting her kids from school just like her entire day was left behind in a shroud of mystery. The present being left partially wrapped on the floor, I think, was meant to be an ominous sign for Keith. Like, oh my, my cheaty little wife was doing something loving for me right before she vanished off the face of the earth. It's totally a ploy to not only manipulate Keith even more, but to manipulate investigators into thinking that she had a decent relationship with him when we know that their marriage was in the toilet. Sherry literally went on for like 60 seconds about how she started to wrap the gift, but then she ran out of tape. And then her voice got pitchy again. I couldn't find any tape anywhere, and I just had to leave it on the ground half wrapped. It's like, get the hell out of here with that nonsense. Get to the kidnapping already. Why are we talking about this bullshit, right? That's what I would be saying if I was an interrogator. Well, this is an interrogation, but... Deep down, I think with the investigators, I think this was an interrogation for them under the guise of being an interview because I don't think they believed a word that she said. If Sherry Papini called me up right now and told me that the sky was blue, I would start thinking, there's no way the sky is blue. So next, Sherry goes into how she did her regular routine that day that she went missing. She fed the chickens and she cleaned the house and cleaned everything. Text messaged my husband, she said. I mean, so much unnecessary junk. And you know who it reminds me of? Good old Pam Hupp. Remember her crazy ass? After she murdered Louis Gumpenberger to try to set him up to try and frame Russ Faria again? There might be some of you who don't know the story, but most of you do. When she went in for her police interview, She started down the same kind of path that Sherry is. I did my usual morning routine. I got home. I let the dog out to go potty. The dog did his business, brought him back inside, gave him a treat. I mean, what is it with these women thinking that feeding their pets is an important part of two very, very serious crimes? And then get this, OMG, Sherry levels up the cringe 
by bringing up that the text message that she sent to Keith to ask him to come home for lunch was code for come home for sex. And she starts to giggle and joke about that too. It's not that important, I guess. It's just kind of stupid and obvious to us anyway, especially now we know the truth. But she's still trying to manipulate Keith and manipulate investigators and make herself out to be this doting wife that wanted to be with Keith in the middle of the day as often as he could because he worked at Best Buy and I guess he is on the road. Maybe he was on the Geek Squad or something. And he definitely looks like he would work for the Geek Squad. So another unimportant detail that Sherry goes into for another minute is how her son woke up from a bad dream and was just upset and wanted his dad. So she went on about that for several minutes, wasting more time. And then she said she took the kids to daycare because that's what stay-at-home super moms do, right? They take both of their toddlers to daycare so she can go home and do what? Jog? Yeah, jog to her side man's house. After that, she brings up going home to start her daily cleaning routine and then brought up how Keith had been able to come home in recent weeks more frequently to eat lunch at home and for them to have mommy and daddy time. So she brings this cringe up again for some reason. I don't know why she has to talk about her and Keith's sex life in this very serious situation that the FBI is sitting there interviewing her about. And she's talking about having middle of the day sex with her husband. Like I said, I think she's trying to build Keith up as a way of covering up for the fact that it's pretty clear that this woman did not like her husband very much. Then they go into this whole side conversation, and this is partially the investigator's fault too, about their chickens. And she jumps all over that and starts to go into all these details about how many chickens they used to have and how they lost to and what kind of chickens they were, all this nonsense. And the officer, he entertains this or the agent he entertains this conversation with her because he apparently raised chickens too and i know he wants to create a comfortable like rapport with this woman but it just it's like just get on with it forget the chickens let's get on to the kidnapping already and i know he also wants sherry to think back on the day and that maybe something will trigger an important memory or maybe they'll get her to slip up and you know mess up her story if they keep digging into the minutiae, she's bound to like trip herself up over her own lies. I still don't know how on the fence these investigate. I don't know for sure if they're on the fence about believing her or not. I tend to think that they didn't. Um, they were just keeping it really close to the vest, but they did a pretty good job, you know, holding her hand through this interview and treating her like an actual kidnapping survivor. They're being very gentle and understanding with her, and it makes sense because there's always a possibility that she was the victim of something. But yeah, when it comes to us and investigators and everybody who followed this case and her stupid, dim-witted plan, Sherry Papini victimized all of us with this crap. And I really mean that. What she did undermines victims of real crimes. What Sherry did causes harm to every survivor of a violent crime. So yeah, she goes on this whole diatribe on how good her kids are with the chickens, and she pretends to scream like her daughter screams when she's playing with them. 
Then Sherry went into all this tremendous detail about what she changed into to go jogging. She was really, really super detailed once again, right down to the hoodie that she wore. It was like an Under Armour hoodie with thumb holes that she hates. And it's like, my first question is, why are you even talking about thumb holes? Second of all, why did you even buy it if you don't like them? Why are we even talking about this when you just got back from being missing for more than three weeks? And again, with her pitchy voice talking about her disdain for those little thumb holes. Hate them so much. Oh, God, you just want to slap somebody. The investigator talking to her is being really patient at building his relationship and his back and forth with Sherry. And you know, at this point, we're like 30 to 40 minutes into this conversation, and Sherry still hasn't gotten to the moment she was snatched off the street by two Mexican women, thrown into a vehicle, bound and kidnapped for 22 days, which she's about to get to, right? Wrong. Next, she's going to start talking about getting back into jogging after healing from a recent breast implant surgery. Yes, that's what she talked about next. Her boobs. And these are the same men sitting there, these FBI agents. I think there's one person from the FBI and one person from the county sheriff's office sitting there who she said she was nervous to be around or to be left alone with because she doesn't know them. And here she goes talking about midday sex and her boob job. Absolutely the last thing that I would talk about when I'm being interviewed with police is whether or not I have breast implants and what the healing process was like is just so stupid. Oh, and then next she talks about how she only runs to one song, her and Keith's wedding song. And she listens to it over and over and over again when she runs. It's called Everything by Michael Bublé. Ugh, I just cannot with this woman. She finally started getting into the jog itself. And she was real specific about who she saw and what she saw. She was waving to neighbors. She was waving to the tree cutters. She detailed what side of the road that she was on. And when she switched sides, it was all kinds of details, which at this point is important because it is leading up to the time that the alleged kidnapping had happened. And many small things can be forgotten or overlooked. Even the smallest details might mean something to the investigation if this had been a real crime. Eventually, Sherry got to the mailboxes that she jogged to, and we're getting to the part where she claimed that she was taken. And you may have noticed the more that she talks about it, the more giggly she gets. And it just doesn't make any sense. The way that she's talking, and oh my God, this woman's voice is so annoying. I mean, we're from California, and sometimes we have this upward inflection. But she does it constantly to a point where her voice goes so high-pitched that only dogs can hear it. I'm used to it, though. I can sometimes sound like that, too. I get it. But there's something so piercing and sharp with her voice at times. It just makes you angry as hell <laughs> to listen to her talk. But, you know, this is like a slow-motion train wreck. And, dreamers, I could not stop listening and watching this video. And oh, in the midst of all this, she insulted every single one of us, us true crime aficionados, by saying 
that before all this happened, she used to watch these shows, these true crime shows. She says, I was that stupid stay-at-home mom that sat around and watched crime and reality TV. <sighs> She's one of those stupid moms, but we are certainly not stupid, and I'm offended that she would lump us into the same group as herself as true crime fans. About 45 minutes into the interview, Sherry brings it up again that she's afraid of the investigators being there because she doesn't know them. She doesn't know if they're in her corner. Yeah, I'd be afraid too if I was sitting there lying to a federal agent. She points out again that she knows and trusts her husband to be in her corner, but she doesn't know them. Okay, so here it's very telling to me, the supposed mistrust of law enforcement. I think that might be something survivors of violent crimes might actually demonstrate in their body language and their demeanor. Lots of people fear talking to the police. But here with Sherry, she is loving this attention. She's eating it up. She's like the star of the Sherry Papini show. And the next person who came to my mind that this reminded me of was Diane Downs. I think I talked about her recently in an episode, I can't remember, but she's that Oregon mom who shot her three children, killing one of them in order to pursue a romantic relationship with a man who didn't want to have kids. This happened back in 1983. Well, after the shooting and she herself was shot, Diane went on this crazy ass press tour because she had claimed that a bushy haired man had attacked her kids and she wanted to try to get herself out there to get the news out there, but she wasn't talking about her kids. She wasn't talking about finding this perpetrator. All she was talking about was herself, just like Sherry. And Diane Downs' story turned out to be fictional as well because her daughter survived a shooting. I think it was the seven-year-old that survived it. And it took her a lot of months to be able to admit to detectives and this is what I'm talking about, fear of talking to police. And this is a child we're talking about. It took her many, many months to be able to admit to the detectives working on her case. And the way she did it was she wrote it down on a piece of paper, the name of the person who shot her and her brother and her sister. She was so afraid that one of the officers had suggested that she write down who did it and then she could throw it away or tear it up. And they told her when she was ready to let them read what she wrote on that piece of paper to let them know and they'll only open it then. This child that survived the shooting being shot by her mother in the chest, I believe she was shot in the chest. She had a stroke as well as a result of being shot. So she couldn't talk for quite some time. Eventually, the detectives, after weeks and months of working with her, they were able to gain her trust, and then one day, she let them open up that piece of paper where she wrote down the name of the person who shot her, and it said, my mom. Now that sounds like someone who had been through some real trauma. Of course, Diane Downs was really bad at faking being the victim of a violent crime, much like Sherry Papini. The two of them are really cut from the same cloth except Sherry didn't try to kill her kids, so at least there's that redeeming quality about that woman. But Diane Downs loved the attention, as did Sherry, and they both made complete spectacles of themselves. 
Diane Downs's interviews and her giggling and laughing and enjoying being in the center of attention and in the spotlight, it's very reminiscent of the BS that we're hearing in these recordings with Sherry Papini as well. So as we were approaching the first hour mark, Sherry finally got to the part where she said a vehicle drove up towards her. It stopped, the window rolled down, and she saw a woman in the car. At this point, Sherry finally starts to fake some emotions here. But it's really just like her voice cracking and she starts to rub her eyes. When you look at these videos, you can see that she rubs her nose and she rubs her eyes. And what I think she's doing, she, she rubs them a lot, actually. It's really bizarre, but it looks as if she's trying to make her eyes and her nose turn red because she is very fair-skinned. So rubbing her eyes and nose frequently can kind of give them this pinkish look. But these videos were in such high definition that it's clear that she's not crying. There are some periods of silence, but, you know, I left them in there. I feel like if you listen really, really hard enough, you can actually hear the lies turning inside of Sherry's empty little head as she desperately tries to figure out what to say next that isn't going to impeach her own story, but also still have her appearing to be traumatized. And like I said earlier, I'm not quite sure that anybody is really buying this because now the details are going to start to run really thin. She says that she can see this woman is wearing a hat, but she doesn't know what color it is, and she's pausing constantly. I think she's faking being like a PTSD victim or survivor. Like, this is what she thinks PTSD looks like. And we all know that she's getting vague, and it's not because she can't remember because of all the trauma of this experience. It's because she doesn't have details because it didn't happen. When Sherry gets to the part where the passenger is inside the vehicle, picked her up, opened up the door, the woman brandished a small revolver. And she does something that's indicative of what liars do, according to the behavior panelists. I watch those guys like all the time. I'm sure lots of you watch them too. They're four guys and they're experts in interrogation and body language. They broke down this video as well too. but. When Sherry starts to get to describing the kidnappers, she starts speaking in fragments. She starts leaving out pronouns and not putting any people behind the actions that are actually happening to her that she says are happening to her. The behavior panelists call it the vanishing perpetrator. Shanann Watts's killer did it. Lacey Peterson's killer did it. Pam Hupp did it. It's a vanishing perpetrator because no third-party killer ever existed in any of these cases. Here in the string of fragmented sentences that Sherry is trying to put together, she was asked to demonstrate how she crouched down when she saw the gun. And this is exactly what she said. Okay, so, cross the road, phones in my hand, earbud out, towards the vehicle, miss, not all the way down, squatting, not crouching, squatting, laid my phone down. And then, guess what, dreamers? Something amazing happened. They spoke English to her and said, we don't want to hurt you. We don't want to kill you. And then she said, I can't exactly remember what they said. It's something along those lines of, we don't want to hurt you. We don't want to kill you. And then Sherry starts to fake sob as she says, we don't want to do something. We don't want to something. Remember, she said these were two women who didn't speak English. 
So Sherry's sobbing so much that it's hard to understand what she's saying, but she's crying about leaving her phone behind. Like she doesn't know why she did that. She could have brought her phone with her to call for help, blah, blah, blah. No, she did it because she didn't want to be traced. That's why. And she needed somebody to report her missing, and she probably knew Keith would use the Find My iPhone to track her down because <sighs> that poor guy, he probably spends most of his day wondering who his wife is in bed with while he's at work and the kids are at daycare, right? Sherry Papini is just a garbage human being. If you recall, when it comes to the phone, speaking of, one of the most suspicious details of this case was the way that Sherry's phone was found. I talked about this ad nauseum in the first episode that I did on Sherry back in 2018. Her phone wasn't dropped onto the ground. It was placed. Just like she said in this interview, she placed it on the ground. The earbuds, they were still corded. There weren't, they weren't AirPods. And the cord was kind of neatly rolled up and placed on top of her phone along with some strands of her own hair. She did all that herself. The speculation at the time was that she was possibly jogging with her earbuds in when she was grabbed and her kidnappers tore her hair out when they took her earbuds and her phone away from her. It was just a really weird thing to find. Like I said, Keith used the Find My iPhone to locate the phone. He, when he found it, it was on the ground near the mailboxes, and he took a picture of her phone before he picked it up, and then he called 911. So through all this, Sherry was crouched on the ground in her, in her living room or her kitchen area, and she was on her knees, like sobbing into her knees. Like she's holding her knees the whole time her knees are pulled up to her chest. and the Behavior panelists said that that's a way of her, her perception of what a person that's suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder might look like. They might be really like wanting to protect their, themselves with this type of body language by pulling her knees up and wrapping her arms around her knees and holding herself, like comforting herself, the self-comforting kind of a move. But that's Sherry's idea of what she should be looking like to these investigators. She's trying to make herself look like this weak victim. She's trying to make herself as small and as vulnerable as possible, and all the while making Keith out to be like some sort of savior and protector. But <laughs> yeah. Anyway, as she continued on, the vague details kept coming. She can't remember getting into the car. She doesn't remember the car door opening. None of the important stuff. When talking about the car, she says that the car did move or the car didn't move. The door opened. The car didn't move after it stopped. She's attributing the carrying out of this crime to the vehicle, not to the kidnappers. She didn't say they drove for a while. They stopped. They drove. They stopped. She said the car didn't move. The car moved. The car didn't move. Who says that? It's very bizarre, and what that is, again, is more of that vanishing perpetrator. So now that Sherry is in the car, the questions are becoming much more pointed, and they want more details. But Sherry has placed herself laying down in the back seat. 
And I believe this is a rented vehicle. I think it was an SUV the first time and the second time when Cherry was brought back. I think it was a Dodge Charger, um, one way or the other. Um, but yeah, I'm pretty sure it was she was picked up in an SUV and dropped off in the Charger. But she also said, Sherry said that they put a pillowcase over her head. So these Mexican ladies just lucked out on their kidnapping plot. They found this pretty lady jogging. And what do you know? They're equipped with a gun and zip ties and a pillowcase hood. What luck, right? Perfect timing. No witnesses. Clean getaway. Middle of the day. Perfect day for the perfect crime, I guess. So getting back to Sherry and her vague details, she said that she became very nauseous in the car because they were going on windy roads and windy roads make her nauseous. Never mind the fact that you've just been abducted by two armed strangers, zip tied, a pillowcase over your head, taken to who knows where to do who knows what to you, and you don't have your phone, but it's the winding roads that are bothering her at this point. Right. So Sherry said that she fell asleep and that she doesn't remember very much more about the car ride to the house where she was kept. She just remembers her wrists were hurting and her hips were hurting. She doesn't remember arriving at the house. She doesn't remember getting out of the vehicle or bring, being brought into the house. So this could all be repressed memories because of trauma or it could be just didn't fucking happen. One of the follow-up questions that I think caught Sherry off guard was one about the Michael Bublé song that she said she dogs to, her wedding song. So freaking cheesy, I can't even stand it. Trying to build up a shitty and broken marriage at every turn in order to manipulate poor Keith into standing by this woman because, you know, they had to have talked about this. And Keith is a little bit of a goober, but he's not stupid. He had to have some suspicion, but he must have really, really, really wanted to believe his wife. It was very easy for a woman like Sherry to manipulate. The investigator asked how many times the song played through on her jog. I mean, they're asking for so many details that there's no way that she's going to be able to keep up this pace, the pace of this questioning, because it goes on for a long time. It's very tedious and exhausting. And you can tell as it goes on, she's starting to feel the pressure. But it's a good thing that Sherry likes being the center of attention because all eyes are on her right now. So at about an hour and a half or so into the recordings, Sherry has now placed herself inside the vehicle. She's bound and being held captive by two Hispanic women. The questions are getting more and more difficult. And it's not going well because there is literally no indication that this woman had just been through 22 days of torture and trauma. Many of her answers are going to be vague. There will be lots of I don't knows and I can't remembers or I was asleep. Some things are not going to make any sense at all when you really think about it. And other things, the nuggets of truth that Sherry has woven throughout her story are actually going to come back and bite her in the butt some years down the way, because she did stay in a home. She did stay isolated inside that home for 22 days. But it was the home of her ex-boyfriend who was letting her hide there, thinking that she was fleeing from an abusive husband. She was staying there willingly. 
So some of what she described of the house and the room that she was being kept in was accurate. She just never thought detectives would one day be standing in that very home looking at all the things that she described years earlier, talking to that very boyfriend who helped her do what she did. The questions are still very measured, but they're getting harder. So Sherry was talking about the car ride to the house, and she described the drive being on some curvy, some straight, and then she says, I'm trying to remember if there were any stops. I've never been kidnapped before and driven in a vehicle bound and blindfolded, but I've watched and read cases about kidnappings such as these where the victim lived to tell about it. I want to say that serial killer that we covered on the show a couple years back named Andrew Ardialis stands out in my mind. His victim, I think her name was Jennifer, um, she survived. And when she told her story, she described every single harrowing moment of being in the trunk of the vehicle. And I mean, her details were so vivid that it brought me to tears listening to her talk. And to make matters worse, when she miraculously managed to escape because she was doing everything to try to get out of that trunk to get it open, the police didn't believe her. That was back in the 90s, too. So, yeah, that's an episode we also covered and a really good one, too, if you are looking or picking through and looking for recommendations. The one on Andrew um, Ardialis is, is a pretty good one. He did have victims. He was a serial killer. He is, I think he is on death row um, now. But this one woman survived and has told her story uh, several times on investigation discovery shows and I think on Dateline or something. I can't remember which show. But when you listen to this victim tell about that experience that she had of being kidnapped and thrown into the trunk of a car, you almost feel like you're practically there. That's how vivid of a picture she's able to present. It's very visceral. And I'm getting absolutely none of that with this casual conversation that Sherry's having with these investigators. And certainly there is no giggling or joking around going on either when you listen to real victims talk about their experiences. Like remember those three girls in Ohio and Cleveland? Michelle Knight, she gave interviews. It's clear how much trauma she's been through. You could see it in her demeanor, in her face, in her posture. She just looks like she's been through a decade of hell. Sherry, though, talks about this experience as if she just came back from a 22-day cruise to the Bahamas or something. Sherry just really loves this attention. She loves all eyes being on her. Anyway, she says that she can't remember any stops. Sometimes she says that she was asleep. Sometimes the road was curvy. Sometimes the road was straight. The rambling that these liars do is incredible. Sherry says, I'm trying to remember. Were there any stops? That's what I'm trying to remember. Did I stop? Did I turn? Or was it just the curves? Or was there a stop and a turn? Right? Or left? It was a turn. It was curves. Like a windy road. Not a stop and a turn. Those were her exact words in this interview. 
And you notice that she attributed these maneuvers in the vehicle to herself and not to the kidnapper who was doing the actual driving. She said, did I stop? Did I turn? Was it just the curves? Was it a turn like a windy road? I'm trying to remember. No, it's because of that vanishing perpetrator phenomenon again. Then the investigator asked her, how many times do you think you fell asleep? And this would have been a big red flag for me because I don't think it would be that easy to doze off a couple of times during my violent kidnapping, if it ever happened to me. I mean, just me? I'd believe passing out or blacking out from the fear or the stress or the adrenaline, like your body just can't take it and you just go blank. But Sherry specifically said she fell asleep. So she was that comfy and cozy to just get in a little cat nap right there in the back seat of that car. Her answer to that question, how many times do you think you fell asleep, was I don't know. And then she says that she doesn't remember anything from the rest of the car ride. She doesn't remember getting out of the car. The next thing she remembered was finding herself in the bedroom. So this is a good way of making it impossible for these officers to figure out where she was kept for those 22 days, or should I say, where she was staying for those 22 days. Sherry told the investigators absolutely nothing useful in getting them any closer to finding the location. About an hour and a half into the recording, Sherry brought up the house for a second time. So this prompted the interviewer to want to try and breach that topic since she mentioned it. She said the first thing that she remembered about the house was that she was zip-tied and that she was dizzy and didn't feel well. Again, I think she's trying to distance herself from having to recall too many things during this interview because that was a non-answer. Then she gets into this whole thing about how her skin developed this really bad rash and how she tried to manipulate, those are her words, she tried to manipulate the two Hispanic women into washing her skin into getting her some medications, telling them, you have to take care of this. This is so itchy. Like, it's hurting me. I can't stand it. Like, she was trying to make them buy her some ointments and things like that. Like, (laughs) it's absolutely ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous that that's what she's worried about. Never mind trying to talk them into letting her go, getting her some food or water. No, she wants to make sure that she's comfortable and little rash she gets on her skin is taken care of properly. Sherry said that she took three showers, but they weren't really showers, she said. It was, in her words, she said, it was get in, rinse off, get out. But here's the thing. In the next day, I believe it's in the second part of this interview, they were talking to Sherry about drinking water. And she said that when she was in the shower, she would stand there for as long as she could and drink as much water as she could. So, yeah, which is it? Was it hurry up and get out or just stand there and take your sweet time? Yeah, she's definitely contradicting herself at some points. You just have to catch them. So after that discussion, Sherry started talking about the first day that she was there and that her hands were zip tied behind her back but she was able to somehow maneuver them to the front and she eventually chewed through the zip ties to get it off. 
Then very oddly, Sherry brings up the fact that she and Keith practiced escaping from zip ties before. So I, I searched on YouTube and I watched a video and I just can't picture myself practicing that maneuver. It looked like it hurt a lot, but I'm not going to sit there and try it. If the time comes and I'm zip tied somewhere, maybe I'll give it a go. Until then, no thank you. But yeah, she said that she and Keith practiced this escape from zip ties. I pictured this being something like bored teenagers would do, sitting around daring each other to zip tie themselves to try to get out. So yeah, they practice this and she's laughing so hard at this whole thing that she's talking about these zip ties. Talking about her first night in captivity with her hands bound and tied behind her back in pain, laughing about having practice for this very thing to happen to her. It is so bizarre listening to this woman talk. So as this conversation about zip ties went on, Sherry said that once her hands were loose, there was, quote, something else. And from there, she goes through maybe like a minute or more of trying to remember what exactly it was that she did once she got the zip tie off. Eventually, she said that there were boards on the windows and that she, quote, ripped that fucker off. And that is the sound that prompted the women to hurry back into the room that Sherry was being kept in. And she very, very aggressively says it that way about the board. And I think that was a very quick flash of what Sherry Papini is really like. She's not this small, childlike, broken victim because it was quite an outburst, to be honest. So anyway, she says the sound of her pulling that board off the window prompted them to come into the room. And after that, Sherry said it was lights out. Who says that? You know how hard you'd have to get hit to the head to go instantaneously lights out like that? But here's the thing. Sherry doesn't know. She doesn't really know how to explain this upcoming blackout that she's going to have. But this is her transition to what happens next in her fairy tale. She says that she doesn't know if she was poked with something or stuck with something. And here, I think she's trying to insinuate that she may have been tased, but doesn't truly want to commit to that because she doesn't know what it feels like to be tased. And it is definitely something you are going to remember. As the officers pointed out that to her at some point, I don't know if they did at this point, but they point out to her that the taser only momentarily stuns you physically, like it renders you unable to move, but it doesn't do anything to knock you out or cause you to lose consciousness. Sherry said she doesn't know if there would be a mark or a scar on her skin if she had been tased. <sighs> if she was tased, she would remember. It's pretty distinctive. I think we've all seen it enough. We've heard it enough. We know what it sounds and looks like. And we know the person is completely conscious and aware that they're being tased at the time that they're being tased. So next, they asked Sherry to describe the flooring. And all she says is carpet. But she had this whole entire monologue about the Under Armour jogging hoodie with the horrible thumb holes, right? But when it came to the flooring and the carpeting in the house, all she says is carpet. One word. The investigator had to literally drag answers out of Sherry. 
And this actually should have been one of the easiest things for her to talk about since she was in that house free and clear, unencumbered for more than three weeks. She stayed in the whole time, according to the ex-boyfriend who helped her, and just exercised and cleaned the house, just past time. She knew what the flooring looked like, but the interviewer had to keep probing her with very simple questions, and she'd come up with these long, rambling, nonsensical non-answers. For example, she said, carpet. He said, color, thickness. Then after a few ums and pauses, Sherry says, different than this carpet. And I guess she's gesturing to her own carpeting in her house. Because that helps a lot in describing the carpeting in somebody else's house. What does your carpet look like? Different than yours? What a stupid answer. The investigator said it wasn't like 70s shag carpet, was it? And that's one of the things where I think he was being sarcastic, almost like he was mocking her because nobody has 70s shag carpet. And when he asked that, she said, no, it was like a cheap, I don't know, maybe it was like a brown or orange or like an orangey brownish, but it was like cheap. It was like cheapy. Okay, so now she's saying the carpet is orange. Nobody has orange carpet anymore. And I think that the shag carpet kind of prompted that thought in her head because I think shag carpet used to be those kind of citrusy colors, you know, like oranges and greens and stuff like that. I don't remember because I was still very young, but I'm pretty sure by the time I was born, there wasn't shag carpet anymore. If I mean, there still was, but they weren't putting it in houses anymore. It was on its way out. But I think calling it like an orangey, brownish, cheap, cheapy kind of carpeting that doesn't look like hers is just her way of kind of latching on to that little hint that it gave her. Was it like shag carpet? It was a different carpet in the closet, too, she mentioned. Like, if they had the carpet changed at some point, or if the landlord had changed the carpet, they changed it in the bedroom, but didn't bother changing the carpeting in the closet. They just, you know, transitioned it under the door. And that's one of those details that would come back to haunt her some four or five years later, after the fact, when they did find in that bedroom at her ex-boyfriend's home that he had different carpet in the closet than was in the bedroom. About an hour and 40 minutes into the recording, the investigator asked Sherry about the bathroom. And she suddenly slips into that childish voice again, like this is something funny to be joking and making fun of. A part of her story was that she had sustained a serious injury in the bathroom because she had tried to use an item from the bathroom to hit one of the women and she ended up getting injured herself. Sherry made like this scoffing noise and said, said just like this. I tried to hit her with something in the bathroom. And the next time I went in the bathroom, everything was gone. The mirror was gone. The towel rack was gone. Everything was gone. But it was just a standard, oh, there was a little crack in the tile. That was another detail that Sherry gave about the bathroom that the investigators years later would confirm. They would one day be standing in that very bathroom looking at that very cracked tile. So the investigators wanted her to continue to describe the bathroom. 
And I mean, come on, if you asked me to describe my bathroom, I would say there's a sink with counter space on both sides. On the left, I have all my hair stuff, my flat iron, my blow dryer, whatever. Above that's the medicine cabinet. And to the right, I have a mirror vanity tray with some sprays and stuff on it. I have another little tray to put earrings and hair ties in. The toilet is next to that. And there are two towel racks. One is above the toilet tank and one is on the wall next to the toilet across from from the toilet is the uh, large bathtub and I have a black shower curtain. But the very first thing that Sherry here described in the bathroom was a crack in the tile. And I don't even think I would think of that if someone asked me to describe my bathroom. But anyway, she did elaborate a little bit more about the tile, all of which would later be confirmed to be a tiny truth in her mountain of lies. She said that the shower was really high pressure and it had like a cheapy shower head. If I ever hear the word cheapy again, and I like adding Y's on the ends of words and turning them into, you know, adjectives. But she keeps saying that everything is so cheap. And I think it's her way of kind of putting these people down because we also know that uh, Sherry is racist against Mexicans. Which is odd, because I think James Ray is, is Hispanic, too. Maybe she has a thing against Hispanic women. I don't know. Somebody must have hurt her sometime in the past. I have no idea. So she calls it a cheapy shower head. She said that she was never allowed to touch the nozzle. And she said the first shower she got was really painful because she had already been branded and had open wounds, and the water running over everything hurt. And Sherry said one of the women doused her with rubbing alcohol, and she questions whether or not it was rubbing alcohol or if it was hydrogen peroxide. I'm sorry. If you're a mom or if you're anybody that is familiar with stuff in the bathroom, my daughter might not know exactly because I don't know if she's ever bought a bottle of hydrogen peroxide. But she would definitely know the difference between the smells for sure. Alcohol is a very distinctive smell. Okay, so then they started talking about whether or not Sherry could tell if the home was a prefabricated home or if it was a normal home. And she started into this long thing about how thin the walls were and how there was wood paneling. It was very thin that she could have busted through the walls. But in a moment, she kind of slipped up and said, if I hadn't been on that cable, I would have been able to bust through the walls. Now, she has not told this detail about this cable to anyone yet at that point. This was part of the story that she had already prefabricated in her own head. She would go on to say that after she broke free of those zip ties, it was lights out. And when she came to, she found herself tethered to a pole in the closet by a chain around her waist and a metal cable attached to the pole. She's going to tell that story, but she just hasn't told it yet. So when she said that she would have been able to bust through the walls if she weren't on that cable, the investigator was about to ask her what she meant by that, because that's an important detail that he wanted to know more about. She was tethered to a pole by a cable. That's like a big deal. But she kept talking about how thin the walls were and how she would press her head against the walls so she could try and hear stuff. And then she brought up being cold all the time, that she was freezing constantly. And then she brought up the fact that there was a fireplace. But then I think she realized that she shouldn't have seen the fireplace because they never let her out of the bedroom. She said the only rooms that she was ever in that she was conscious or not blindfolded for was in the bedroom and the bathroom so then she changed her story and said she could smell the fireplace 
and she could smell the different types of wood that they would put into the fireplace. And then she goes into all this nonsense about how the sound of the fireplace reminded her of her childhood home in Shasta Lake City. I mean, who cares? Get on with the fact that you're tied to a freaking pole. We're not trying to sit here and reminisce about your childhood. Well, we finally get to the point where the investigator was able to ask about the cable. He said, what's the comment about when you were on the cable? And you guys, you want to know what Sherry replied? You may have missed it. A lot of you couldn't handle listening to this whole recording. So if you didn't make it all the way through, and I totally understand, but as long as you made the download, that's good for me. She replied, what do you mean? Sherry had no idea what he was talking about. And that, my friends, is why it is so hard to keep your BS straight. What do you mean? She just said it herself. This obviously didn't happen, but even she forgot her own alibi story. So dumb. So after the investigator reminded her that a minute earlier she said the words when I was on the cable, he said, were you tethered to a cable? She said, there was a chain around my waist. And just as she was about to describe it, they asked if she wanted to make a drawing. And this is where Sherry gets really bizarre again with her baby talk and her pitchy voice. So she takes the paper and she goes, it's a pretty little stick figure. And she's giggling. I mean, seriously? Sherry's literally sitting there talking about being chained and tethered to a pole in a closet. And she's giggling as if this was like some kind of fun ride at an amusement park. It is so strange. I can't even begin to imagine the terror a real kidnapping victim would go through. I've tried to put myself in that place and in that headspace, you know. It's weird how resistant our minds are to wanting to know what it's like to go through something like this because I really can't imagine the fear. I think the most afraid I've ever been in my life is when I lost my daughter at a flea market on Oahu. I almost died. I thought I was going to have a heart attack. She was only seven years old. I was panicking and freaking out for like five minutes. I couldn't find her. That's probably the most fear I've ever had. So when I try to imagine this level of terror, I see myself thinking about my daughter the whole time, having her in my mind, and how terrible it's going to be if I get murdered. I think my fears would be centered around what's going to happen to my kid and what she's going to know or to be told about the last moments of my life? Or what if I'm never found and my daughter has to live her life not knowing what happened to me? Sherry actually doesn't talk about her kids all that much throughout this interview. Being away from her children, who were toddlers at the time, I'd be so heartbroken and traumatized to be taken from them. And I'm just not seeing any of the effects of this ordeal in anything that this woman is saying or doing. It's honestly the strangest thing I've ever seen this woman. So once Sherry makes this pretty little stick figure comment, the investigator asked if maybe she could draw the whole room, and Sherry replied with her high-pitchy, sure, as if she's working the drive through at Chick-fil-A. So she happily agrees to draw this room that she's being held captive in and describing how it was set up as she goes along. And she's describing how this pole went through the shelf in the closet. And if she had been just a little bit taller, she would have been able to push the shelf up and get the tether off the pole. 
I don't know how Sherry imagined all of this to be looking, but then she went and drew the pole and called it a stupid pole when she drew it. And here, her anger, for some reason, is misdirected again at the pole instead of the people who are doing this to her. And there's another point in this interview where Sherry says, this fucking pole is the only reason why I was there. I find it really strange that there is absolutely zero anger towards the women who did this to her in the first place. She's literally cursing this pole. This whole thing is the pole's fault. The pole that never existed, but it's easier to blame than, say, the two women who never existed. So anyway, she's tethered to this pole and she says, could reach the bed, couldn't reach the door, couldn't reach the window, could reach the bed. She said that all the times that there was a bucket in the closet and that's what she used to go to the bathroom. Very matter of fact about this very debasing and humiliating thing to be made to squat on a bucket to go to the bathroom. Girls, stop. We know that that didn't happen either. She's going to sit here and tell us that she tried to manipulate these women into getting her medications and creams for her itchy skin by complaining and complaining until they got her what she wanted but she's just going to go to the bathroom on a bucket. No big deal, right? Then a few minutes later in the same conversation about sketching the room, she started calling it a trash can instead of a bucket. It's a small detail, but it's still inconsistent with her story. At first, it was a bucket. Like I said, I know it's small, but if I was kept in a room for 22 days and had to go to the bathroom on something other than a toilet, I would remember if it was a trash can or a bucket. She said that at some point she suggested to these non-English speaking women that because they were always mad about it, that's what she said, they were always mad about it. And what she's talking about here is these women were always mad about having to clean out that bucket or trash can for her. So she suggested to them that they put a trash can liner in it and use cat litter and that would make their job easier. Um, you know what would make their job easier? If she was able to convince them to just let her go onto the toilet instead of making them go out to the store to buy trash can liners and kitty litter. Like, are they really going to go through all that trouble when they could just let her go to the bathroom in the bathroom? Well, apparently these Hispanic women thought, wow, that's a really great idea. Let's go to the store and get her some cat litter to go potty in. And she said that's what happened. They came back with cat litter and that's what she went potty. That's what she used to go to the bathroom in for the, her, the rest of the time there. Nobody's going to want to clean out this bucket and trash day in and day out for somebody that they're supposedly trying to traffic. Nobody is going to do that. These people are not going to clean up after somebody like this. They don't care. And maybe I'm going out on a limb here and saying this, that if this was a real story, I just don't think these women are going to give a rat's ass about their victim's level of comfort. I'm not a human trafficker, and I don't really know how all the inner workings of these things, you know, happen. But all of the things that Sherry described about her being injured and branded and her hair chopped off and getting beat up and everything, these are things that are meant to humiliate somebody, right? But at the same time, it's kind of messing her up to a point that's making her less desirable for trafficking, don't you think? And I also think that there's this misconception about how human traffickers operate. They're not really driving around in rural areas hoping to find a random lone jogger to snatch off the street. 
Usually their victims are targeted and groomed. Anyone can be a victim of human trafficking. But these traffickers, they tend to zero in on more vulnerable members of society. Homeless people, runaways, undocumented people, at-risk youth, or other oppressed, marginalized, and or impoverished groups or individuals. What happened to Sherry is not an effective way of trafficking somebody, because look what happened. They took some pretty blonde, self-proclaimed supermom off the street, and the story went viral. The whole state of California was looking for this woman, and that's not the kind of attention human traffickers are going to want. So this stunk from the beginning. And because it's such a sensitive topic, nobody in any official capacity would come forward and insinuate that this woman was probably lying through her teeth. Sherry spent a good amount of time talking about this whole thing that she was tethered to. She tried to answer the questions the investigators were peppering her with. They want to know as many details as possible, and I just don't think Sherry was ready for this. After this line of questioning, there came a very loud and audible, (sighs) at which point the investigator asked if she was okay. It was exhausting just listening to this interview, right? Imagine what it's like being subjected to this kind of questioning and having to make up all these details on the fly. A little more than two hours into this nonsense, the investigator started asking Sherry specifics about her attempt to escape the first day that she was at the house when she was still bound with the zip ties. She said that she had a hard time standing up, that she felt very heavy, and that she had a hard time moving around at first when she came to from whatever it was that knocked her out. So the investigators asked, is this when she regained some of her strength? Is that when she made her attempt to escape? And Sherry said, what do you mean? When I had the zip ties on me, I never felt like I had any strength. I was just trying to push through it. I was very fumbly and I wanted to get the window out. I was very fumbly, but, and that's where she cut herself off. This whole part of her story, her first waking up inside this bedroom bound with zip ties, she managed to sidestep having to give the details about how getting from the car to the house by saying she passed out or she doesn't remember because then she would be expected to describe what the outside of the area looked like and if there were any cars or people or other buildings or houses that she could identify. She would have to give away way too many details that could possibly give away her actual location if she wasn't careful about what she said. The investigators next started asking Sherry about the showers that she took and the details about that. They asked what kind of shampoo she had, and she said she never had any shampoo. It was just like, and then she never finished her sentence. They asked her if there was a shower curtain, and she said no, just a bar where a shower curtain should have been. She described the knob to turn the water on, and she said there was a bottle of body wash that she would throw at her when she'd get into the shower. Sherry said that the showers were very short, that she barely had any time to wash the soap off of her body. Sherry was asked about any other details about the house that she could remember, and she said that the only part of the house that she saw was the bedroom and the bathroom. Just over two hours into this interview, the investigator said that they wanted to get into the harder stuff, if she's okay with that. So this is a little more than two hours into this interview. They wanted to get back to the details. Um, They wanted to try to pry more details out of her regarding 
her first night in that house that she was being kept in. As Sherry has made it seem like that was one of the times that they had gotten the most violent with her. She goes back and forth between remembering and not remembering, but then she says she remembers ripping the board off the window and then the door opening, and then she remembered waking up in a lot of pain on her side and on her back and in the back of her head and on her neck, and she says she knows that there's more that she just can't remember. Sherry then said over and over again that they kept telling her, don't look at me, don't look at me. After that, Sherry casually talked about what it was that she did that prompted the kidnappers to attack her and injure her. As she's pointing to various marks on her body, she says this is for trying to rip the window open and these marks are for making the noise and the burn on her back came later for something else. And she's talking about this like it's normal everyday stuff, getting tortured and beaten and burned and punished while being held captive. It's like a walk in the park on a Sunday afternoon for Sherry to talk about. The investigators are wanting to talk about the burn on her back, the branding, but they're trying to be sensitive to the whole topic as well. So they start to offer her a break. Maybe we'll come back to it after something to eat or drink. So Sherry matter-of-factly explains that this whole thing is getting so frustrating for her because she's trying to remember, but it's so hard to have a timeline of things. You know, when you're trying to make up the details of a 22-day-long odyssey that actually never happened, yeah, there are a lot of voids to fill, and Sherry just wasn't prepared for this line of questioning. But you gotta hand it to her, she is fully committed to this, right down to the very end, she will be. Okay, so I'm gonna go ahead and stop this here. That's about where this interview ended. I was able to convert the second half of the interview, and I'll be able to put that into another separate episode if you can bring yourself to listen to this woman for another two hours. So that's what's gonna come up next after this episode. And after you listen to the second half of her interview, um, I'll do another recap and commentary about that. I still have more to come with this case. And once we're done with this, we are done with this. And I don't think we'll ever have to talk about Sherry Papini again, unless we're just reminiscing of how stupid all of this fuckery is. Hopefully this woman just goes away and never comes back and Oh, but if she tries to pull another publicity stunt, I'm here for it, though. I'll talk about her again. All right. I want to thank you all so much for listening. Stay tuned for more on this crazy story with this crazy lady. And as always, until next time, sweet dreams. <laughs>